You've got a real attitude problem, McFly. You're a slacker. You remind me of your father when he went here. He was a slacker, too. Oh, This is the Brad Gilmore Show. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, they're gonna see some serious shit. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? 1.21 gigawatts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Future of the Podcast, the only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I am Brad Gilmore, and I'd, I'd like to say that we're friends in time, maybe acquaintances. I know we're still getting to know each other, but I do have a guy who is definitely your friend in time. He is DJ Normie Norm from Rockefeller Park. Actually, his name is Norman Benford, coming from State College, PA. Norm, how you doing? I am doing great, Brad. Once again, glad to be talking Back to the Future. And as we are now uh, traipsing down the aisle and we are in Season 3, I think it's time for me to officially debut my Season 3 nickname for you, sir. Uh-oh, wait. Hold on. Drum roll, please. From this day forward, you shall hereby be known as Brad Dog Buford Gilmore. <laughs> I love it. I am Brad Dog. Well, I love it, Norm. Very inventive, and it's apropos because we're in season three. We're talking Back to the Future three. Very apropos. I love it. Well, Norm, we have a great show for the folks today. I do want to say one real, real quick thing. A quick note. A couple of quick notes here at the top of the show. Um, I did get an, a, an email from one of our listeners, one of our pinheads out there, who asked about a certain part of the show where it seemed as though the audio may have skipped a second. I'm going to uh, be the great and powerful Oz and let you look behind the curtain here for a minute. Well, during our recording last time, Norm, we had a, I had a call come in from a, from a VIP. I don't know if I'll drop his name, but we had a VIP call, and it messed up the audio for a half second. I had to kind of do my best Robert Zemeckis in the editing room and... Uh, uh, and splice it together. So someone caught it out there. Uh, I can't find that email right in front of me. But I just wanted to know, we plan to have no interruptions in this show, and it should be a nice, straight-through recording. Isn't that right, Norm? It should be, yes. And just let the record reflect that this unnamed VIP who Brad took a call from is someone that I would be very, very happy to talk to, yet I could not get the solid of an introduction, Brad Dog Buford Gilmore. Hey, hey, I turned heel on you. I turned heel on you. No, no. See, the thing was, is I'm talking to you through Skype on a tablet, and this VIP called me on a cell phone, so you could hear him, but you couldn't hear him. He couldn't hear you, I mean. Yes, okay. I understand. But for for future reference, feel free to give him my number, just like I extended that offer to give you... Uh, the opportunity to give Sasha Banks my number at WrestleMania, which I haven't heard from her yet, so maybe she must have just lost it by now. You know, I mean, I wrote it. I wrote it on the back of a flyer for saving the clock tower, and I handed it to her. 
I don't know. I don't know why it didn't come through. It's kind of confusing. Uh, but but I will say, in person, Norm, she looks good. No doubt, no doubt. She's, she's and quite she's so so talented too. And we'll and we'll just leave it that at that because we're not here to talk wrestling. We're though not. we could. We're, we're here to talk. But the but the VIP who called me was Booker T. Name drop. Uh, we're here to talk Back to the Future <laughs> Part Three. But uh, is the, the thing that's special about this episode? Everyone knows. Um, a few few months back, I got the privilege of going to the Delorean Motor Company here in Houston, Texas. Actually, in Humble, Texas, about forty five minute drive north of Houston, and uh, I got to meet Stephen Wynn, who's the CEO of Delorean, and talk to him about them. They were they were launching new Deloreans at the end of this year. I'm very excited. You can hear in the tone and tenor of my voice, and I got to check out an, an actual time machine, which I sat in, and uh, sat in, and it was incredible. I had all the gadgets, all the gizmos. I got to turn the time circuits on, and a couple of people asked, was that a sound effect that we put in the video? No, that was actually from the car. It made all the sounds. Whenever you t- pushed any button, it made sounds. It was it was a wet dream for a Back to the Future fan. So, uh, I, I, I know that we talked about doing an episode on the DeLorean Norm, a more extensive look at the time machine, not so much the actual car. And that's what we're going to do today on Back to the Future of the Podcast. We're going to be talking about the evolution of the DeLorean. Norm, take it away. Well, it's a, it's a great topic because as, as fans of the trilogy know, boy, does this car go through a lot during these three movies. So much changes over the course of the trilogy with that car. And I, as I alluded to, I believe in, in the last episode, if you're just talking physical changes... Nothing else in the movie changes as much as this car does over three movies. And it's it's just really interesting to kind of take a step back and kind of tick off some things on the checklist. It's like, oh, hey, did you notice that? Did you notice that? So we are going to be talking DeLorean. And so if we want to talk about that DeLorean, we're going to start with the original film, Back to the Future. And of course, as everybody probably knows, the original time machine was built from a 1981 DMC-12 DeLorean. DMC, of course, stands for DeLorean Motor Company. And I was there. I was at the DeLorean Motor Company. Did I mention that? I was there. I, no, I, I that, was there. That, break, breaking news. I was Brad there. has been... To- <laughs> Excuse me. Pardon you. And, uh, Jeez, Norm. Excuse yourself. Pardon me. And the the DeLorean was picked uh, storyline wise because the stainless steel body would be more conducive to passing through the time stream undamaged. But the reason that they picked this car for the movie was because they just loved the look of the Gullwing doors and. It had kind of that spaceship vibe to it that very much played into Marty's first trip to the past where the whole spaceman from Mars and the radiation suit. And it's just it's so funny that a car at this point that's over 30 years old can still look so futuristic. Yeah, I mean, the car itself, like even when you're up close to it and, you know, I got to see, you know, where where they manufacture it all and see some of the – what was cool is – and it was in the video. I got to see like they had – Rows and rows and rows in this warehouse of just the Gullwing doors. And one of the first things I saw when I pulled up to the 
the facility there where the gold wing doors were open. They were like, so there was literally a, a DeLorean sitting there with the doors open, you know, and it was just like, oh man, this is the most awesome thing to pull up to when you're going to the DeLorean Motor Company. But there's something about that look. It's just so sleek. And it, and it's just I don't know how to explain the look of it. It's one of those things that, at, 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 in one in one aspect, and I think only because of these movies, it kind of looks dated. It has a dated look to it now. But still, if you were to if you if you saw someone driving a DeLorean down the road, you're like, man, that's a badass car. So you, it, it has that timeless appeal. But at the same time, it feels very 1980s. It's a really it's a really um it's a it's a it's a it's a riddle. It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle. It's an enigma of a vehicle, if I do say so myself. Yeah, and I, I guess you could argue that uh, the the custom grill and headlights on a DeLorean they, they kind of they kind of look their age as a product of their time. But still, just overall, what a, what a what a sleek, fantastic looking car. Now, I, I think it, we, we talked about this on the last show, but originally the time machine was not going to be a, a vehicle. It was going to be like a, uh, a refrigerator or something to that effect. Uh, but when they, when they chose it to be a car, I don't know, Norm, could you come up with another car uh, from, from the 80s that would be a good-looking time machine, as good-looking as the DeLorean? I can't think of one. I don't know if you go with like a Corvette or a Mustang, but I don't think that's really that cool. Maybe a Porsche, but something about the DeLorean. No, and and I'm not enough of a car guy to have kind of an informed answer to that question, but I I think we can just agree that they just nailed it on this one. Although it is kind of interesting to think about uh, an alternate timeline, if you will, where they, they did use a refrigerator in the film, and just think how much that model refrigerator would be selling for on eBay today. You can Got to get yourself that authentic Back to the Future refrigerator. Oh man, you know I'm sure they didn't want. And I think wasn't that one of the uh, the the qualms about making a refrigerator was that like little kids would try to get in their refrigerator and go back in time then, and they didn't want little kids getting stuck in refrigerators. I don't know. I may have made that up, but it makes sense in my head. But the DeLorean had so many so many qualities going from it from a from a visual standpoint, purely aesthetic based. It looks like it should be a time machine, but they did so much to this car to 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 further create that illusion that uh, this vehicle may be possible of time travel. Isn't that right, Norm? Oh, absolutely. So I guess that's a good time for us to talk about, uh, I guess we can call it DeLorean 1.0, the the first Doc Brown DeLorean-based time machine. We, of course, see it for the first time backing off of Doc Brown's truck, and Marty asks him, you build a time machine out of a DeLorean? And there's just, you know, it wheels down off the truck, and we have the, the basic DeLorean, but as you look at it, you can see that it has clearly been modified already. Uh, there's those giant jets on the back to pump out the exhaust, which you know that that's not factory. That's that's a bit of a <laughs> that's a bit of a what's the word I'm looking for? A liberty for? that they took. Mo- yes, modification. Modification, uh, so better word. Thank you. So there's those those big jets that give the DeLorean even more of kind of a, a spaceshipy feel to it. There's a lot of cabling running along the sides, some of which lights up, some of which does not. There's the you know the plutonium chamber in the back, which holds the fuel that powers the time circuits, and um, I think that's pretty much what you 
can see from the outside, there's various pieces of circuitry. There's there's kind of something, I guess, ostensibly that, that is some kind of time circuit, but it looks like red oil filters just kind of screwed into the back window of DeLorean. But we'll, we'll forgive that one. Or possibly solo cups could be one of those, although I don't think it was. They certainly wouldn't survive the trip. <coughs> survive the trip, they would definitely not. But the, the, the first look at the DeLorean, to me... Is is it, it's a toss up, but it might be my favorite. This the DeLorean 1.0 might be my favorite of of all the iterations of the DeLorean because I don't know if it's because it's the first. I always have this debate, and I know it's not true, but you know a lot of the times the first equals the best. You know what I mean? And so like when when I think James Bond, I think Sean Connery, which some people swear by Roger Moore, but I say, but Sean Connery was there first, man. He set the role. And in a lot of the ways, I think of this about the DeLorean. I know a lot of people have a fondness for the flying DeLorean which I do as well, but I think this first one, this first version, and I'm talking plutonium chamber, not Mr. Fusion, this is, this is the one that I like the most. Well, I, ha- I have a different answer for that. I, I was going to kind of save that conversation to well, the if you end. Want, if you want to save it, we can get back to it, or you can get into it right now. It's up to you. Well, I, I will have to apologize, Brad, because these show notes are not built to scale. So we'll just go ahead and jump on that that topic right now. My my favorite DeLorean is the DeLorean from the beginning of Back to the Future Part 3 that just has that awesome kind of huge external time circuit that was built with 1955 parts from instructions that Doc sent from 1885 into the future. And also, it just has those sweet, giant uh, white walls on the tires and those yeah. those big half-moon hubcaps. That, that's that's my DeLorean right there. That's those, my favorite. Those white wall tires are pretty sweet. They are pretty sweet They're on that amazing. DeLorean. But the thing about They're it was amazing. is they, they put that, you know, the, with the external time circuit, they had the wood all over it. You know, it was like a wood apparatus that was holding it in there, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And that, that yeah, and the whole mm-hmm. The whole thing was held down to the car with canvas straps. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> well, to me, that's what threw it off. I'm like, oh, this looks a little wonky. Where's the sleek, trim, lean, mean, time-moving machine? You know, time-traveling machine. That's what I liked. I liked the first one. But a lot of people love that flying DeLorean. And the model time machine that I got to sit in was from, I believe it was modeled after Back to the Future Part 2 because it had the Mr. Fusion on it. You could, you could make the argument it was from the end of the first movie. Because I know there are, you know, you know, we talked about wrestling earlier. There are wrestling smarks, you know, which are like smart fans who know everything about wrestling, for those of you who don't know. And then I think they're, they're back, the pinheads can get a little smarky with me sometimes. I get into some Twitter bouts before about, well, actually, uh, you weren't uh, uh, 100% correct. I'm like, I understand. I get it. I understand. I, I, I don't know everything there is to know about Back to the Future. But I will say, that the the flying DeLorean is a favorite amongst I would think most fans. I think if you did a poll, I think most fans would say that flying DeLorean from the end of the first movie or from Back to the Future Part Two is one of the is the best one out of the three. I think if you did a poll, that would win just because the flying factor. You have Mister Fusion. Everyone remembers Mister Fusion for some reason or another more than they remember the external time circuits or the uh, you know the uh, plutonium chamber. That is the one criticism, I guess. Of the plutonium chamber is a little hidden in 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 the DeLorean 1.0. Wouldn't you agree? It's like kind of like toward the back. You don't really notice it. You just know he's putting the plutonium into the chamber. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not 
it's not something that needs to be visual. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's the second gas tank. And I think, I think a reason a lot of people would say that the DeLorean from the end of Back to the Future 1 is their favorite DeLorean. I mean, let's, let's be real for a minute. It runs on beer. A dream come true. <laughs> um, I want to talk about something, though, that's in all the DeLoreans. It's a very important piece of the DeLorean, if not the most important piece, because when Doc was standing there in 1955, on, on November 4th, 1955, um, or whenever it was, it was November 4th, right? I didn't make that up. I didn't mess that up, did I? It was November, right? Uh, I'm not much of a date guy, so oh, was October? we're taking applications. October. Wait, hold on. I actually have in front of me a, a a notebook which I purchased when I first started doing this podcast. That it says uh, "A Match Made in Space" by George McFly, and it's a blank notebook that I took notes in when I was working on the first the first. Uh, oh wow! Wait, is today the eighteenth or today? Today's the nineteenth. But today's these, the 19th, yes. these these notes were written uh, precisely on Saturday. April the 18th, 2015 at 9.46 p.m. I made sure to put the date and the time there. Now, I'm looking, yes, Saturday, November 5th, 1955. That is when Doc Brown was hanging his clock, and he fell off, slipped and hit his head, and when he came to, he had a vision, a vision of this, the flux capacitor, which makes time travel Possible. I think the flux capacitor is one of the most iconic pieces of uh, most iconic artifact. One of the most iconic artifacts in movie history. When you look at this thing, it looks cool. It looks like it has a purpose. When you see it, you kind of believe that it can make time travel possible. And it's. It, I mean, it. That thing lighting up and doing the flickering, doing the fluxing of the flux capacitor. Um, every time that you see that, it, it has as a fan. It has to put a smile on your face. That's why I love the 30th anniversary edition of the Blu-rays. It came with a flux capacitor that you could turn on and off. I would say that uh, all the, the trimmings on every iteration of this vehicle, the flux capacitor is the coolest and the most important. Oh, yeah. In, inside or out, it's... You know, it's quite literally the heart of the time machine. Without the flux capacitor, you're not going anywhere, 88 miles per hour or not. You're just driving around the mall parking lot really fast. So, so while we're talking about kind of the inside of the DeLorean, there's been a lot of other things that Doc added in there. Obviously, the the, the time circuit, the keyboard, that the time circuit, the that. Uh, not LED, LCD readout is right up there as far as an iconic piece of movie memorabilia as well because, you know, that it's just visually interesting with the different colors and the last date visited, current date, where you're going to next. So while it's not as cool as the flux capacitor, it's it's still pretty darn cool and obviously essential to the operation of the the DeLorean and the time machine. Now that, that switch, that, that switch that you, you grab with a fist and then you rotate counter counterclockwise. Does that turn on the flux capacitor and the time circuits or is that just the time circuits? I always thought that that was an activation for just the time circuits and you having sat in a DeLorean and flipped that switch yourself. Would you care to comment? 
Now, are you asking? Is, rephrase. Tell me your question again. Are you asking? Is it is the switch itself what activates the time circuits? Yes. I, like I think the flux capacitor operates independently, and the switch is what turns the time circuits on. Am I getting that correct? I think so. You know, it, it's interesting. I've never thought of that. Now I'm trying to backtrack and think about sitting in the vehicle when I when I flip the switch and I turn it from vertical to horizontal. It says, you know, time circuits come on. You get the choo thing, and the the date. You know, this is this one tells you where you are. This one tells you where you're going. This one tells you where you've been. Those things come on, right? And I'm trying to think: does that turn on the flux capacitor? I think it does, though. I think it does, Norm. I think that I don't think the flux capacitor. Well, I don't. Now I'm confused because the flux capacitor has to operate independently because it's getting a plutonium charge thrown through it. That, that's what I'm thinking too. It's it's not powered by electricity. That's true. So I I think you're right. I think the time circuits when you turn them on, they're just turning on the programming or the software, if you will, necessary to program the correct date that you want to travel to. But it does not, in fact, enact the time travel. Does that make sense? No, yeah, I, I think so. I think that just uh, powers up the board and gets the firmware running. Well, you know, we're talking about the internal modifications of the vehicle, especially in the first film. Another iconic piece that sits right there on the dashboard is that awesome speedometer. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I think that was probably put in there for storytelling purposes because it's you know it's very digital. That eighty-eight miles an hour is is going to look really cool when you're seeing that on a digital thermometer, as opposed to an analog where you're just kind of seeing that needle climb and needle climb. And let's face it, there's no eighty-eight mile per hour marking on an analog uh, speedometer. So they they hooked up that that digital thermometer thermometer speedometer. Uh, number one for kind of storytelling purposes, so the the audience can monitor the speed. And number two, it just kind of looks cool to see that that red 88 on that display where, you know, that, as we all know, that's when the serious shit kicks in. <laughs> when this baby gets up to 88, you got to see some serious shit, Marty. Um, when, but you, I, I understand your point, but they do in certain parts of the movie, for all the pinheads out there who might point this out to us on Twitter, which, by the way, you're on Twitter now, Norm. What's your Twitter? I am uh, at Norman B two five eight. I'm trying to be a reformed Twitter quitter, and I'm getting back in the game. Well, there you go. Um, well, one thing that they might point out to us on Twitter is that they do at times build up drama with the regular analog speedometer. I do remember shots of it going up to ninety. Am I? Am I? I'm not making this up. Am I? No, no, I don't think so. But I think if you want that clarity for that 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 dramatic kind of 88 miles an hour that's what that digital speedometer is oh for. yeah and yeah yeah i mean i a thousand percent agree with that i think it's more necessary to have that 88 right there in your eye in your eye line you know right there in, the, in your own view to see that 88 and to know as soon as that thing goes from 87 to 88 boom he's back at old man peabody's twin pine ranch or whatever like as soon as it go- clicks so i think and it's a it's a necessary storytelling tool and they they take that storytelling tool and 
and double down on it for Back to the Future Three with uh, with the the smoke logs and the, the red, yellow, green gauge, mm. where you just you just you're just waiting for that needle to pass into the next color because you know, boom, something's going to happen every time that needle moves into the next stage. So it's it's a tactic that they employed in that film and also employed very well. I may add. You know what? I'm so excited. Like, I know we just started the season, but I'm so excited to get to the finale so, so we can talk about the movies. <laughs> because that scene is one of my favorite all-time scenes in any movie, is that train scene at the end of the mo- uh, end of Back to the Future Part 3. I mean, you talk about drama and suspense, but we'll get to it. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. But um, now, when Marty in the first movie goes back to 1988, though, we see him and Doc... Try to figure out how to how to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour and how to generate the necessary 1.21 gigawatts of electricity uh, to go into the flux capacitor or to go into the car to send it off to the uh, back to the future, if you will. And Doc kind of forms some kind of apparatus to uh, be able to capture this lightning. Isn't that right? He does. Yes. Uh, since obviously they don't have they don't have access to plutonium. In 1955, Doc constructs uh, some kind of giant gaffer hook that, you know, essentially turns the DeLorean into an amusement park bumper car that's going to draw power, the 1.21 gigawatts, from the lightning strike that hits the clock tower that is then delivered to street level via wire. And if they time this all right, which, spoiler, they do, uh, (laughs) then... Marty harnesses the power of lightning, activates the flux capacitor, and returns to 1985. So, this just that that big wire with a hook on the end. Of course, the hook is there to make sure that it doesn't miss the wire. And interestingly enough, I believe that uh, that gaffer hook remains in 1955 after Marty returns to 1985. It, I don't know if it was just kind of thrown there in the plutonium chamber or if it just disconnected because of the explosive force of, of the lightning, but the gaffer hook does not make the trip to 1985. You know what? I've never noticed that, nor have I ever thought about it. You know what else they stopped doing is the DeLorean, like when it came back, at least I think they did stopped doing it, when it came back from a trip, that's, you remember it was supposed cold. to arrive cold? Yeah. Yeah. That and that was something I never quite understood because it comes back cold, yet when it leaves, it catches the street on fire. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get that either. But I, I don't. I think it only came back cold like once, right? Oh no, it came back now, twice. Think, or did I it come back cold just, every time? If it did, they did not specifically specifically refer to it. You know, it was always kind of smoking a little bit, kind of that dry ice effect when it would return. So I guess eh, I guess it was implied. I think at the end of the first movie, it definitely came back cold. Like when he came back to the future from 55 to 85, I think it definitely came back cold that time. But that, I think that's the last time that I remember it coming back completely cold. But moving, moving right along, though, after we see the grappling hook, which, by the way, like in the model – 
1955 that wasn't built to scale, and he apologized for the crudity of, of the model. But when, when he did come back and he made a little model and he had the little red wind-up car that had the little you know wire sticking up gimmick like you know would later on, I do love that scene where you know he, he enacts the lightning right at the right time and the car catches on fire and you know it goes into the trash can, it sets everything ablaze. And Doc's reaction was just perfect. It was this over-the-top, cartoony, never would you see this in real life reaction of Doc, you know, reacting to the thing being on fire, but I loved it. Now that that was a great scene. Uh one of my favorites. And uh agree or disagree, Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown, more cartoonish than Christopher Lloyd as the judge from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where he actually was a cartoon. Oh, Good, 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 good debate here. I got to say that he's more cartoonish as as Doc Brown than he is as as Judge Doom, but he is most definitely, and we can't forget that he was the page master, which was also a cartoon. Um, but I will say that he was more cartoony as Uncle Fester than he was as Doc Brown. Mm, valid point. I know. I mean that that was a that was a real physical transformation too. Oh, you know how long it took me to realize I was Christopher Lloyd? Like, I'm not even joking. Like, it took me a long time to figure that out. I was young. Give me a break. I, what, what did they do with Christopher Lloyd's neck when they were filming that movie? Because it's just gone. He's just a head and a robe. And he definitely disappeared, didn't he? He definitely yeah, disappeared. Absolutely. Well, here at the end of, at the, end of the first movie, he's, uh, we see Doc return from the future, right? Uh, he comes back from 2015 at the end of the movie, and we do see a couple of modifications then as well, correct? Oh, just a few. <laughs> this, of course, is is the first appearance of the Flying DeLorean, which, as most of the pinheads probably know, was just supposed to be a throwaway joke. When they were filming Back to the Future, there were absolutely no plans for Back to the Future 2 until this this movie hit the theaters and just started making money hand over fist. So this was just kind of the, the Bobs wanting to wrap up the film with, you know, just kind of a little nudge-nudge, wink-wink joke to the future. So uh, Doc arrives in 1985 in the Flying DeLorean, which has been hover-converted, presumably by uh, Goldie Wilson the third. Yes, the third. And so now the DeLorean can fly, thanks to the hover conversion, and the time circuits are no longer reliant on plutonium. They're powered by Mr. Fusion, which basically can take just about any organic matter and convert it to energy. Although not technically street legal, according to Doc Brown. Or you could even say Skyway legal, because the DeLorean's on the street and in the Skyway. Exactly. Well, the DeLorean then... We all know how the first movie ends. The, the, the wheels lift up, which is, which is a new addition. And it, and it can fly, like you said, by uh, Goldie Wilson III. Applied that hover conversion. And they fly into the sequel. And the second movie, we see a new DeLorean. And in the third movie, we see a new DeLorean. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Here on Back to the Future, the podcast, we're actually out of time, so we will pick this conversation up <clears throat> same time, same place next week. Uh, but until then, he's Norman Benford at NormanB258 on Twitter. I'm Brad Gilmore at Brad Gilmore on everything. We are your friends in time, and we will see you in the future.
Brad Gilmore Show On Demand is meant for entertainment purposes only and does not mean to infringe on any copyrights of Back to the Future, its characters, its audio clips, or its music. Hope to see you again in the future. What have you done?